um, a thing that says tailgate party. I had no idea what that was about. It says everyone. Uh, and so I was talking to Rodney earlier, and that's this Tuesday night. Uh, it's teen-oriented, but it's for everyone. And I, I remember uh, coming to it last year, and it's a lot of fun. They have a couple of uh, food trucks so you can get your dinner. And so uh, just that invitation is extended to everyone who can come by, drop by, encourage our teenagers. Uh, I, I know there's a couple of uh, live talks during that time, uh, one of which I'm involved in. But if, uh, if you can come by and encourage them and be a part of that, you're invited. Um, I'm amazed at how everything interweaves together. Uh, Jamie, your remarks, uh, I thank you for reading those because uh, reading Romans, that was the passage I had to leave out of my notes. I mean, I had, it was in my notes. And I thought, well, this is getting too long. I had to cut that one out amongst other ones. And so it just fits right into what we're going to be talking about today. And then... Nathan, I don't know if you all noticed that the title of the lesson today is Confidence Toward God. And in the song that we sang, My God and My King, there was a line that said, Blessed is the man whose confidence is in God. I don't know if you noticed what you sang. I know myself, sometimes I'll sing and I'll just sing the words and not notice uh, what I'm singing. But that, that, that stood out to me, of course, as I've been thinking about this lesson. Also, is there an Anna Watkins here? No. Mosley, yeah, okay. <laughs> I caught that too. <laughs> Turn to 1 John chapter 3. <clears throat> you know, I've spoken of the simplicity of this book and the difficulty of this book. If you're visiting with us, if you've one of your first times here, we've been working our way through 1 John. Over a period of time, we've had some... Interruptions, as we often do, I don't call it, they're not really interruptions, it's just that we need to do other things at times. And last week I really enjoyed sharing the pulpit with my dad. It was, a, it was uh, encouraging to me to, uh, to listen to him and to be with him. But we're in First John for a lot of our studies. It's a short book. It's the simplest of language, uh, both in English and in the Greek. It's the simplest language. And yet it has a depth that belies its simplicity. I think, as I've thought about this, I think it's because uh, John uses simple words to convey deep meanings. One commentator said this on the screen here, probably few commentators have satisfied themselves with their own analysis of this epistle. Still fewer have satisfied other people. And I read that and, and I thought, you know, uh, that's how I feel. I, I am not satisfied with my study and my presentation. And I suspect few of you are satisfied with it, too. I mean, it is a, it's a tough little book. It's beautiful. I think the whole message, the whole Bible is summed up in this little book. As the more I study, the more I see everything from Genesis to Revelation is, in, is, is compacted in this, this small book. And so as I come to this text today, it's impossible for me to, to look at it superficially, treat it superficially. Uh, I, I believe I'd do the word of God an injustice if I did that. Do you one also? I liken my, my study to this as jumping into the deep end of a, of a pool each week. 
uh, I get to explore the depths of God's word. And I, I, I'm thankful to you for allowing me to do that. Because there was a time that I, I really was not capable of doing it. I, I struggled for years of how to even look at a text and, and, and present it. My early years of preaching, if you had been there, you would, have, you would have felt worse about me than you perhaps do today. I mean, it's just, I studied it and I, I just had no idea how, what does this say? What does the word say here? And it was, it was difficult uh, for me. And I don't pretend that now I've reached some great height. I haven't done that. But I think as you age and as you study, you begin to see things you hadn't seen before. The scriptures begin to enter. You see the interlocking of the scriptures. And I'm thankful in this uh, last few years, I've, I've, my mind seems to have finally begun to mature in my study. So I'm excited about what I'm going to present. I'm excited about this. And yet at the same time, there's a little trepidation, too. You know, I'm like, ooh, you know, how am I going to convey this beautiful message uh, to you? Um, each week, as I, I mentioned already, I left, I have a lot of notes I write down. And I left out a lot. And each week I have to decide, what do I leave out? What do I not leave out? How much time should I take talking like I am right now? I mean, it's like 40 minutes. It's too, it's too little time to spend on this passage. And yet I know that 40 minutes is too long for you to sit there. And so every, every time I try and to distill this down to about 30 minutes, and I, I apologize when I go over that time. Um, so may God grant you the patience in sitting and a thirst for his word and gr- grant me the wisdom to know when to stop. Uh, We've come to the second half of this book. It started in chapter 3, verse 11. And he's been comparing things, all right? We've, we've been away from the book for a while, so I need to catch us all up. He's been comparing and showing some contrast between extremes. Uh, the first part of the book, we saw this, and it's so obvious in your first reading, is between darkness and light, sin and obedience. We see, and we see this theme just continuing throughout the entire book, and we'll continue to see it through the end. Uh, we see a contrast between uh, false, uh, falsehood and truth, uh, between being children of God, children of Satan, between love, between Christians, hatred of the world. world. Uh, and we, every time we, we continue to see these contrasts, and I think, at least I do when I read this, I wonder where I am. When I read this, I look at this and say, you know, these, these sentences are so black and white and yet my life is so great. I, I don't, you know, I see this black and white, and yet I feel in my own personal life I'm, I'm gray. I'm not black and white. Let me give you one example. Chapter 3, verse 9. He says, no one born of God will continue to sin. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. And if you take that passage by itself, get away from the context of the book in isolation, sensitive souls will reason like this. Well, I've continued to sin. I must not be born of God. I mean, he says, no one born of God will continue to sin. Have you continued to sin? Have you sinned this week? Yes. Well, I must not be born of God. I must be outside of Christ. I must be lost. And it's further compounded if we have teachers or preachers who can use passages like this 
as a spiritual club to really make you feel bad. I mean, you could, if you parked there and just really hammered that down, you would just, you know, if you keep on sinning, you're not born of God. And so you get this and you, you look at your life and say, well, I, I just, I can't do it. And we go to this passage that we looked at, uh, that uh, Jamie shared with us. You know, a wretched man that I am. And if we stop there, at wretched man are, that I am, we're lost. You know, that he keeps on going. And uh, if you didn't get that passage, it's Romans chapter 7. Now we come to three verses. Chapter 9, uh, verse 19, 20, and 21. Which is the heart... In the center of this the, a passage here that really begins in chapter 2, verse 18. And I want to read these three with you, and then we'll, we'll do a little more reviewing. Look at verse 19. He says, This then is how we know we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in this presence, whenever our hearts, con- whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. As I said, this is a study of contrast. I want to show this to you very quickly. Chapter 2, verse 18 through chapter 6, verse 4. I know it's kind of analytical, but here it is. We, we see these contrasts between truth and falsehood. And I think the heart of that passage is chapter 3, 19 through 21, which we just, which we just read. And if you think about this, nothing could be more relevant today than this message of a contrast between truth and falsehood. This is where we live right now. We are a nation, and I believe this is true in in the world in general, but but I know it's true in this nation, that we are people, and I'm saying very generally, our society are people who do not recognize the difference between right and wrong. I see it every week. Over and over. And I, and I think, how in the world can people not see this? And it doesn't matter the degree of evidence that you put before, before people. We live in a world that is confused. Uh, Romans chapter 1, and, and it's, it's from the beginning of time. It, it comes from the very first sin. But it just seems to have increased more and more and grown more and more. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 18 He says, he he describes people, the wickedness of men who suppress the truth, suppress the truth by their wickedness. They, they, They don't see the truth, they suppress it. And then he goes on and he says, God has made it plain to them. God has made the truth plain to them. Uh, he says his invisible qualities, the things you cannot see, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. The evidence is there. And then he goes on, he says, their thinking, people's thinking becomes futile, becomes empty because they're suppressing the truth. And it says their foolish hearts were, this, this word, darkened, just like we're reading in the beginning of this uh, first John. They claim to be wise. I've read people with doctorate degrees who are acclaimed as wise people. They became fools. Because they're looking at truth and they're, and they're not seeing it. They exchange the glory of God, of the immortal God for images. 
Uh, there was another passage. On, okay. Verse 25, we'll end there. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Truth and false. Falsehood. They took the truth of God, that which was plain, and they exchanged it. Have you ever been to another country and you exchange money? You take your money, you exchange it for something else, for their money? This is what they did. They took God's truth and they said, I want to exchange it. And they exchanged it for a lie. And that's what, where, where this world is today. Um, we're, we live in a world that accepts everything. Nothing is false. Everything is true if it's true to you. It's fluid. It's the world's message. Uh, I've been reading recently a, a, a book that Bill Kuhn gave to me about Darwinism. The evidence of a designer is so clear in the biggest part of the universe that you look into the, to the universe and look in your telescopes and you see design everywhere. And if you go right down to the, to the cell and the makeup of a cell, the smallest thing, the makeup of that cell is a complex uh, entity that re- is a machine that creates, recreates itself. The DNA, the RNA, on and on. All these things. And we look at this and we see it and it's clear and it's mathematically impossible for this just to have happened. And the evidence is there. And people say, it's not true. I'll I'll accept the lie for the truth. God says in very beginning of Genesis, he made them male and female. This is where we are today. I googled that. I googled a question. I can't remember the exact question. The very top uh, first choice. I hit on that. It's the only one I, I, I went to. And it said today there are 75, I counted them, 75 different sexual preferences. What's truth? <laughs> Read them. This is, this is where our neighbors are. This is where the society is. This is where the persecution is coming from. This is our politics of today. There are not, it's not male and female. You get to choose from 75, and you can change, by the way, from day to day, I guess. I don't know. It's so confusing. It's true. And you think, how, how, how in the world, how, 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 how can we think this way? We started by adding one. There were three. Then there were four. Now there's 75. And so as Christians, we need to stand for what is true. There are things that, we, that are right and there are things that are wrong. There is light. There is darkness. There is truth. There is falsehood. And John makes it clear. So if you're uncomfortable with that harsh stance of truth and false, of what is right and wrong, then you need to keep getting into God's word because that's, that's I mean, you just have to reject it like everyone else did. It's true or it's false. And so he, he begins to bring this out, starting in, as I said, chapter 2, verse 18. He says he speaks of the truth, and he, he says the opposite is a lie. He speaks of the real. He speaks of the counterfeit. You know, what's counterfeit? Counterfeit looks real. I mean, it really looks real. It looks right. When you look at it superficially, you say, yeah, 
That's that's real. But you have to examine it. And that's why we have to study God's word. We have to examine it so we can really see what's real and really see what's not real. In Angel's business, she was given some counterfeit money on a couple of occasions. It looked real. I mean, it looked real. It kind of felt real. There was something funny about the feeling. But when you, you present those to the bank, guess what the bank does? They say it's counterfeit. We're not going to accept this. In fact, we are going to, we're going to remove it from you and send it off to somewhere else. I don't know, wherever they send it to. And you get to lose your money. That's really what, it, that's what counterfeit does. You lose when you deal with counterfeit money, counterfeit anything. And so we can't look at this passage superficially. We have to look at it in depth and examine it. What is real? What is real? And the answer is what God says is real is real. And we need to continue to look at that. The contrast continues in chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. He says there's children of God, there's children of the devil. That's the way it is. There's two different uh, sections here. He says in chapter 3, uh, 13 through 24, the nature of the Christian love is on one hand and the world's hatred is on the other. And he contrasts those. And that's the uh, section we're currently in. And then later on, he's going to go in chapter 4 and he's going to show this contrast, this difference between two spirits. And we're going to look at that when we get to it. You know, here's the bottom line. John is intolerant. John's intolerant means God's intolerance. See, the, John didn't make this up. This is God's word, not John's word. John wrote it through his God's inspiration. But God is intolerant. And let me tell you, that's good. There's certain things that we should not be tolerant about. When it comes to death, destruction, danger, peril, heartaches, hurts, warning signs should be erected and said, do not go there. Do not do that. Danger. And, and the intolerance is for our own good. You know this as parents. Sometimes you're intolerant as a, uh, as a parent. Right and wrong frees us. We're able to live blessed lives when we understand what right is. When we understand what evil is and how it destroys, we, we get away from that. I, I was driving down the road uh, yesterday and the day before yesterday, this, at least two days in a row. And then I was walking down the road. Same child, had to be this high. I don't know how old that is. Three? Something like that. Standing by the side of the road. Mama was on the porch, or grandmama, I don't know who it was. And they're standing by a fast road. This is not a slow road. And I almost crossed the road and told the child, get away from the road. And I thought, well, I do that, I might get shot, too. <laughs> And a car was coming. I saw this car coming fast. I mean, you know, a car was coming at 25, 30 miles an hour. Not real fast, but fast enough to hurt someone. And I was on the opposite side of the road, and I'm thinking, what should I do here? Should I cross the road? And does this child know better? You know, we, we, want, we want to, with our own children, at least with mine, you know, we just say, we, we put the danger signs up and say, do not go in the road. Why? Because we're intolerant? Yeah, I am. On that, I am. I have no tolerance there. You know, I wasn't a big spanker for my kids. We won't say who was, but <laughs> I, 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 spanking was really hard for me. But I tell you what, I whooped them when they got in the road. I did. I, I wore them out when they got in the road. 
And the reason was it was this. I wanted to make an impression on them. I didn't see, hear an amen from any of my kids. But I wanted, to, I wanted to leave an impression on them, on their soft side. And I did that the road, I would not tolerate them going in that road. Why? Because I'm a mean person? It was out of love. I knew the danger there. I knew what would happen when they went in the road. I knew they, they could get killed or hurt. And so I was intolerant. I said, no, do not go. Death is there. Destruction is there. Danger is there. And that's what God is doing here. He's saying, look, I'm warning you. I'm letting you know this is where you don't go. And our world is so twisted, and the, the literal meaning of iniquity is twisted. It believes that the Scriptures limit the, the scriptures hinder us. It hinders our freedom. When in reality, it frees us. It shows us where we're blessed. And it shows us where the danger is. Our last three lessons, chapter 3, uh, verse 12 and 13, we saw, I saw motivation in here. We examined Cain's motivation, the world's motivation. Cain's motivation to murder. The world's motivation to hate. And John says, do not be surprised. Don't be naive here. The world system will actively oppose you. It will actively oppose what is right. You're going to find this on your job. You're going to find this in politics. It's going to be all in the working of your life. He says, don't be surprised when you get hit by that. You know, don't get hit blindsided. It's going to happen. Do not be surprised. Righteous behavior fuels hatred from the world. Because the righteousness, something about righteousness shows the radical and fundamental wrongness of the world. And so they'll oppose you. Then in chapter 3, verse 14 through 18, we look at another thing of motivation where it says, we have, mo we're, we have moved from death to life. We, we've gone from one sphere to another sphere. The realm of death, we've passed out of that into the realm of life. And he shows the contrast there. And he says the evidence of that life and this life is the Zoe life, the eternal life, is seen in love. And it's seen, and, and I, I've been avoiding the word love, I've been saying God love or agape, because in our minds when we say love, we think some emotional something. But it's God love. It's, it's something different, fundamentally different. And as we continue to study through John, we'll see this more and more. Further, that love in us is given to us, it motivates us. By the fact that we see Jesus laying down his life for us, his ultimate sacrifice, of course, on the cross, but his daily laying down his life. And he says, now, practically, this is what you do. You do the same thing. You lay your life down from one another. And we're not talking about just dying. Just, you know, that might come, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the daily laying down our lives for each other. And so John then calls us to love in the working out of our faith. And in our lives, and he says, and don't just do this with words, do this in actuality. Verse 18, he says, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and in truth. My paraphrase says, dear, dear ones, let's not let God love be simply words and theological concepts. God loves acts and it's, real, and it's the reality of our lives. And now we're going to. In the context, blend right into chapter 3 
19 and 20, 21. When I come to this, there was a bit of a barrier. I struggled with this text for a long time. Um, it, it, there's some difficulty here. Now, when, when I'm in other countries like Fiji, where people are bilingual or trilingual, explaining translations is pretty easy because people, they live it every day. They're, they're translating from one language to another. And so they understand the difficulty in translations. Here, where most of us only speak English, we don't deal with cross-language, we don't deal with cross-cultural communication, and so the attitude a lot of times is, well, it says what it says and it means what it says. The end. Let's move on. And yet the best translators, they differ in their translator translations. And so we can do one of two, uh, several things. We can say, well, smarter people than me don't understand how to translate this, so I guess I can't understand it and skip it. Uh, we can choose, choose one translation, say, well, I'm just going to stick with this particular translation. And as I look at those two options, to me, to me personally, that's lazy. It would be a lot easier for me to just say, oh, well, whatever, and go on. And I've taken that road several times in my life. But a third way, and I think the best way, is you take the passage, you struggle with it, and by that I mean it's an ongoing study. It could last years. I may change my mind on this passage in years, but I think I'm right right now. <laughs> As I said earlier, I get to jump in the deep end of the pool every week, and so I think you expect for me to um, share that with you. On the other hand, I'm not going to make this so technical that you're going to go to sleep. Wake up. All right? We're not going to be technical. All right? And lose the message. We've got to get the message of this book. Um, in fact, I think the key to understanding this goes all the way back to the purpose that John wrote this book. Why did John write this? And this has been a key that, that opened my eyes to First John. All right? If you get nothing else for the rest of your life, you might remember this, this one thing. This has helped me understand First John better than anything else. It's purpose. Read any commentator. They will say the purpose of John's letter was to combat Gnosticism. And you say, what in the world is Gnosticism? Forget it. You don't have to know. I don't think that's why John wrote it. I think the reason John wrote it, he states why he wrote it. He said three times, I wrote this because. This is the reason I wrote this book. And he never said I wrote this to combat Gnosticism. So you don't even have to know what the word means. Chapter 1, verse, uh, chapter one, verse 4. I write this so that what? Surely some of you know that you're what? Joy. I heard joy, didn't I? Did I hear joy? Okay. Your joy will be filled up. You'll be full of joy. When you read this passage, chapter three, nineteen, joy should come from it. Chapter 2, verse 1. I write this so you will not, so you will not sin. All right. So he emphasized I, the part of the reason is so that you will not sin. This should help us not sin. And number three, five, verse 13. I write. I wrote this at the end, he says, so that you will. They say one of the key words of John, you will know you have eternal life. That word know is used 47 times or something like that. I write this so that you will know 
that you have eternal life. So as I read a passage that I have a hard time with, I'm trying to figure it out. I say, how does this fill me with joy? How does this stop me from sinning? How does this help me know I have eternal life? Those are the keys. If I can get that, then I can understand this, this passage. And so starting from there, we're going to try and to uh, seek this. Let me show you the differences. There's two ways this passage can be uh, translated. Let me read it to you once again, just so we get back into it. 19, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Here's the difficulty. There's two ways to translate set our hearts at rest. Some, some translators say persuade or convince our hearts. And the difference is this. Taken in one sense, we're convincing ourselves. We're doing something I have to convince or persuade myself. And the other thing takes something that's in my life. And by that evidence, I can quieten or, or set my heart at rest. One is self, self-focused. The other is outwardly focused. One is saying, I will, I will, I will, I can. I'm going to be, I am going to be, I'm persuading my heart. I am, I'm in a right relationship. I'm in a right relationship with God. And it's kind of this persuading of ourselves. And the other one is saying, looking at evidence and saying, I'm at rest because of that outward evidence. You see the difference? All right. The second problem is God is greater than our hearts. And very, very smart men will take these two different, two different approaches. They'll say, whenever my heart condemns me, when I see sin in my life, God is greater than my heart. And he sees far more sins. If your heart condemns you, you better believe that God's going to condemn you even more. Or the other way of looking at it is God, who is far greater in compassion and mercy, sees our self-condemning heart and extends grace and forgiveness. The third key is so technical, I'm not even going to, I'm just going to say what it is. There's two words there that can be translated because, because or that, and it makes a difference. And if you're really interested, talk to me later. We're not going to go there. Here's the bottom line. The context of 1 John has stated its purpose, and that's how we're going to in, interpret this. It gives us joy. It helps us not to sin. It assures us. And the actuality, going back to chapter 3, verse 1, we can look up there. He says, you are loved children of God. The fact is that we have passed from the death to the life. And I tried to explain that earlier. Not just death to life, but the death to the life. And this should lead to a boldness and a confidence that compels me to, to translate it this way. Our hearts are quietened by And made it rest and assured by the knowledge of God, who is far greater than our sinfulness and has provided us with salvation. And that's even further confirmed that this God love that we find working, we find this God love working within us. This then is how we know, he says in verse 19, this is how we know. And he's pointing back to verse 18 where he says, we love an action in truth. And when you love an action and out of truth, when you're doing it the way God wants you to do it, it confirms in you that God's love is in me. 
It's further confirmed as we will look later on. The text expands more in chapter 4 where he says, listen to this. I can't wait till we get here. Chapter 4, verse 17. We will have confidence on the day of judgment. Wow. Perfect love casts out fear. Our hearts are set at rest by what we know. We know something. And our hearts are set at rest because we know it. And it's evidenced in our life by the love that we have. Confidence toward God. Wow. Look at verse 21. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. That's utterly amazing. That's mind-blowing. We read over it very, very quickly and don't even think about it. But to think that we can approach the unapproachable God in confidence. Approach God in confidence. The most powerful one who spoke the universe into existence and all its complexity. This book I mentioned I was reading. Talking about the complexity of everyone's, the, the, the smallest cell in our body. The vast universe, as you look out and you look into trillions and trillions of miles of space into other galaxies, they say there's a hundred billion galaxies. We, we live in a galaxy that's 100,000 light years across. And there's 100 billion of those. And God said, let there be. And it happened. How in the world can we approach him with confidence? It's a height of absurdity. Or it's a gift beyond measure. How do we do this? How can we, how can we approach him in confidence? Here's the answer. Because our confidence is based in him, not on me. For God, it says, is greater than our hearts. God is greater. He's greater than our hearts. What does that word heart mean? One thing it means, it means our feelings. You ever feel unworthy? You feel you can't approach God? You feel bad? You feel sinful? You feel God is greater than your heart. He's greater than how you currently feel. I feel discouraged. I feel down. I feel like I'm ineffective. I feel on and on. And he says, God is greater than that. And so again, we see this good news. Again, John does this. He says, the good news is God-centered. It's not man-centered. The reason my heart is quietened, the reason my heart is at rest, has nothing to do with the lack of sin in my life. is isn't because I'm sinless. It's not even the degree of sin. We say, well, I had a lot of sin before, now I have less sin. Okay, good. I hope so, because one of the purposes of this is so you won't sin. But that's not why I have my heart at rest. You know, I used to be a really, really, really bad sinner, and now I'm just a really bad sinner. And one day I'll be a bad sinner. And then one day I'll be a good sinner, which means I'm a really, really bad sinner. <laughs> Think about it. No, that's not why my heart's at rest. It's not because I'm getting better. Not because I'm performing 
in a greater way? It's in spite of that. It's because I'm a child of God. How do I know I'm a child of God? Because God's Word told me I'm a child of God. And because I know it, because I am a child of God, I'm made His child by His grace. And because Jesus, uh, because of Jesus, I have Him as my advocate. He speaks on my behalf. How do I know? Have I ever seen Jesus speak on my behalf? I've never seen it. But, you know, I believe it because God's Word says He speaks on my behalf. I know it because He says it. And I believe it because He says it. And because, I, because He said it, He's speaking on my behalf. So when I sin, when I mess up, He's speaking on my behalf. God is greater than my feelings. I can then speak in freedom and confidence in the presence of God. Can you imagine? I can speak in freedom and confidence. And that's what that word literally means. Confidence. It means freedom of speech. It's the First Amendment rights in the Bible. In front of God, not man. To freely share our thoughts. To freely share our speech with God. With the God of the universe. Without fear. Without shame. I talk to Him. I stand boldly for him, before him. I talk to him in confidence. Not because I can say, hey, look how great I've been doing this week. Look how I've cleaned up my life. Look what I've done. It's because I can go to him and say, because you have cleaned me up. Because you're, you constantly clean me. Because of the blood of Jesus. Because of what he's done for me. Because he speaks for me. All those things. I stand here in confidence. I've always said, if, Jesus, if God asked me at judgment, why should I let you into heaven? I have one answer. Blood of Jesus. It would be a big mistake if I say, well, you know, I preached at uh, Central for, I put up with those people for a long time. They'll be saying, well, we put up with him for a long time. How is it remotely possible? Not because I bring a sacrifice and not because of my sacrifice. Life, I'm confident, but because he provided and gave the perfect sacrifice for me that I stand in confidence. It's what he has done is trust in him. In fact, let me look at it this way. If you do not stand confidently, confidently before the father, you are in essence. And I say this in kindness. You are in essence saying your sacrifice is not enough. Jesus said this. God said this. You can stand in confidence before me because of the sacrifice of my son. And if I don't stand in confidence before him, I'm saying your son isn't enough. My sin is far greater than your son. My sin is far greater than the blood of Jesus. I have to stand in confidence before him because he said my my blood is strong enough for your sin. Then that gospel doesn't become a gospel because it's centered on me. It's what I've done, my performance, my attitude, my goodness, how well I'm doing this week, the sins I've conquered, conquered, the things I've overcome, and it quickly and very subtly becomes a man-centered gospel. Shall we continue to sin? Someone says, well, you're just making excuses. You're You're saying you can sin. Shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? Romans chapter 6. What does the King James Version say there? God forbid. How shall we who are dead to sin live in it? Dead, live. See how 1 John just pulls it all together? How can you who are alive in Christ be caught up in this deadness of the world? Of course you don't sin. 
course you get rid of those things. We're not talking about that. We're talking about no matter how good you are, you're not good enough. God takes care of us. God cleanses you from all sins. It's not self-confidence. Worldly self-confidence. You know, the worldly self-confidence is, I deserve, or I can, my personal ability, my talent. But this confidence of God is based in humility. It's based in a true assessment of the facts. I have passed from death to life. I now walk in the light because I've placed my trust in the Advocate who speaks on my behalf. By his sacrifice, I became a child of God. I trust in him. Trust means repentance. Trust means baptism. Trust means basic belief. All those things. I'm reminded of of, um, Psalms 23, verse 4. He says there, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Confidence. I will fear no evil, for I am well armed. I thought you liked that. <laughs> yeah, sheep walking through the valley. This is how we like to walk through the valley of death as sheep. I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death for I believe in myself. That's what the world says. Believe in yourself. Be you. Uh, Sometimes I don't want to be me. (laughs) Just be you. Believe in yourself. Kind of a bad road to take. Some, Some of you have really done that well, haven't you? All of us have. I am not confident because I believe in myself or... Because I have an I can attitude, or because I deserve one of my favorite unfavorite words, isn't that what I have next? I deserve. What's the next one there? There, I deserve greatness. I deserve it. I don't deserve greatness. I deserve hell. <laughs> I will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will have confidence. I will fear no evil. For what? You are with me. Your rod and staff, your protection, your guidance, they comfort me. David had it right. Had nothing to do with his own power. Had nothing to do with what he could or couldn't do. Had nothing to do with any of those things because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You think this is mind-blowing confidence before God? Look a little bit ahead. Look at what I have to deal with next week. And we will receive anything we ask. Wow. How do you explain that? Come next week. You will receive anything you ask. Think about that this week. Let me read 19 through 21. I think 18. I'm starting with 18 here. Sum it all up in this paraphrase. Dear, dear ones. Let's not let God love be simply words and theological concepts. God love acts, and it's the reality of our lives. You see, when the love of God is put into practice in our lives, we enter into a growing knowledge that we are, are authentically of the truth. 
truly of Christ. We then can quieten our tempestuous hearts as we live in his presence, even at those times when our conscience rises up and points an accusing finger at every sin and every and, and inconsistency in our life. For you see, God is far greater than our self-condemning hearts and transcends our human limitations. He knows and understands all. Loved ones of God, if our hearts have been put at peace and rest, then we speak freely before God, unhampered by fear or, or shame. Can you stand before God in confidence? If you're a Christian, you should say yes. And if I say, how in the world can you do that? You just answer, because of Jesus. That's it. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. If you are outside of Christ, 